Welcome to the end of the innocence, the JFK assassination. I'm your host, John Young. In this week's episode, we're going to follow President Kennedy's motorcade through the streets of downtown Dallas as he headed towards the kill zone in Dealey Plaza. As President Kennedy's car was approaching Dealey Plaza, what did some of the witnesses see? There were witnesses that saw strange happenings in Dealey Plaza right before the president's car got there. We're going to look at some of those this week. begins the 11-mile ride to the Dallas Trademark, where the president is to deliver a major address. Governor and Mrs. Connolly ride in the presidential limousine. A radio newsman describes the motorcade as it moves toward the Dallas Trademark. The president's car is now turning onto Elm Street, and it will be only a matter of minutes before he arrives at the Trademark. I was on Simmons Freeway earlier, and even the freeway was jam-packed with spectators waiting their chance to see the president as he made his way toward the Trademark. Leading the presidential motorcade on November 22, 1963, was an enclosed sedan driven by Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry. Sitting to Curry's right were Secret Service Advance Man Winston Lawson. In the back seat behind Curry sat Dallas County Sheriff Bill Decker. And to his right was Secret Service Agent in Charge Four Sawyers. More than two car lengths behind this car was the presidential limousine. Driving the limousine was Secret Service Agent William Greer, who was the oldest man in the White House detail. Next to Greer sat Roy Kellerman, who was the assistant special agent in charge of the Secret Service. In the center of the car, in folded down jump seats, were Governor Connolly on the right and Mrs. Connolly. In the rear, on a padded seat which could be raised or lowered mechanically, sat John Kennedy and Mrs. Kennedy. Mrs. Kennedy would sit to the left of the president. Behind the limousine, about a full car length, was a follow-up car for Kennedy's security guards. Following the security guards was a 1964 Lincoln four-door convertible carrying Vice President Lyndon Johnson, Mrs. Johnson, and Senator Ralph Yarborough. The driver of this car was Texas State Trooper Herschel Jacks, and Secret Service Agent Rufus Youngblood rode to the right of him. Their car was trailed by Johnson's Secret Service guards and the rest of the motorcade. It consisted of five cars for local dignitaries, three cars for press photographers, one bus for the White House staff, and two press buses. Something I always found strange was the press photographer's car, which usually preceded the president's car, was placed eight cars back, which totally negated their purpose that day. Their purpose was to photograph the president during the motorcade, so the ambush took place well away from the eyes of the media. This prevented the media photographers from witnessing the assassination or capturing it on film. Few words were spoken by the car's occupants as they basked in the shouts and cheers of the dense crowd that was packed along Main Street. Up ahead, clear blue sky could be seen as the presidential car began entering a small, triangular-shaped plaza at the end of a long, dark corridor of buildings. As the motorcade headed down Main Street, it broke into the open space of Dealey Plaza. When Dealey Plaza was created, it was the beacon of modern civic pride in Dallas evidence that the city had reckoned with the challenges of its own success. Back in the 1930s, Dallas's population had grown to 260,000, creating congestion on both the roadway and the railway. City engineers decided to confront the growth by redesigning three acres, part of the original town site which had blossomed into the modern city, and to build a triple underpass beneath the rail line. It was an innovation a park designed to be experienced from a car, a very contemporary urban design, before California built its first freeway. 
and featured a number of beautification elements. Art Deco reflecting pools, garden structures, lamp posts, pergolas, and a sculpture of George Bannerman Dealey, the Dallas newspaper publisher for whom the Art Deco style park was named. Part of the design rerouted Elm Street as a one-way curved road that ran adjacent to the Texas School Book Depository building. In 1936, the Dallas Morning News hailed Dealey Plaza as the gateway to Dallas and a place that must surely play a great part in the future of this city. On November 22, 1963, the 35th President of the United States, John F. Kennedy, rode through Dealey Plaza in a motorcade down Elm Street toward the Triple Underpass. According to the clock on the Hertz sign atop the Texas School Book Depository, it was 12.30 p.m. From that moment on, Dealey Plaza's innovation would be transformed into a dark memory of national tragedy. The site is preserved just as it was in November 1963. This frozen moment in time has also preserved much of the original 1930s and 40s characteristics, which may otherwise have been replaced with skyscrapers as a result of Dallas's continued growth. If you could imagine the bottom part of a peace sign, that's exactly what Dealey Plaza looks like. It's a virtual canyon, a wide open central area with no side streets. Curbing and grass line both sides of Elm Street, disallowing any escape route, and there are adjacent clusters of buildings with hundreds of windows. Even with the most stringent of security measures, the Secret Service could have never covered every point in the plaza to protect the president like they should have. The geography of Dealey Plaza in itself is a massive security breach. The motorcade had to slow down to almost 5 miles an hour to negotiate the sharp zigzag turn onto Elm Street. In addition, the motorcade's lead's car, the motorcycles, and the follow-up car behind the presidential limousine all boxed in the president's car. Dealey Plaza provided ideal vantage points and cover for an assassination. As the motorcade slowly passed the depository on its way towards the triple railroad underpass, there were at least four perfect firing points from which to ambush the president. The motorcade was due to reach Dealey Plaza at 12.25. The president and his entourage were late by approximately five minutes, as Mr. and Mrs. Kennedy had unexpectedly taken extra time to shake hands with the numerous well-wishers that lined the motorcade. By this time, the president's assassin would have been positioned and ready in the depository's sixth-floor window. Carolyn Arnold, a secretary at the depository spotted Lee Harvey Oswald in its first floor lunchroom at approximately 12.25 p.m. And you can bet that we're going to talk about Miss Arnold spotting Lee Harvey Oswald in the first floor lunchroom a little later in this podcast. But for those out there that have never been to Dallas and visited Dealey Plaza, I want to talk a little bit about the grassy knoll. Warren Report defender and attorney Vincent Bugliosi captures the importance of the grassy knoll in his book Reclaiming History. He writes, just as the validity of Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection, the validity of conspiracy theories rises and falls on the grassy knoll. If it can be demonstrated that no shots came from that area, the very heart of conspiracy allegations and lore ceases to beat. The grassy knoll played a huge part in the writing of American history. Probably no small section of land in the United States has been the object of more controversy than that small portion in Dealey Plaza, known as the famous grassy knoll. 
Located between the Texas School Book Depository and the Triple Underpass, the grassy knoll provided an ideal ambush site. Running along the top of the knoll was the wooden fence known as the picket fence, which stood about five feet high. In front of this fence were shrubs and evergreen trees, which even in late November provided a leafy canopy over the fence. The fence ran east approximately 75 feet from the north edge of the Triple Underpass, then turned north for about 50 feet, ending in a parking area behind a concrete pergola located to the west of the depository. It was from a vantage point atop a low concrete wall on the south end of this pergola that the most famous home movie of all time was made, the Abraham Zapruder film. Before we get into the actual assassination itself, I think it's very important to know what some of the witnesses in and around Dealey Plaza saw just before the assassination. The crowd of witnesses along the motorcade route through Dealey Plaza saw many things that differed from the later official version. Even before the motorcade arrived, men with rifles were seen by people in downtown Dallas. Shortly before noon, Philip Hathaway and co-worker John Lawrence were walking on a card street toward Maine to get an observation spot for the motorcade when Hathaway saw a man carrying a rifle in a gun case. He described the man as very tall, about 6'5 or more, weighing about 250 pounds and thick in chest. The man was in his early 30s with dirty blonde hair and had a crew cut. He was also wearing a gray business suit. Hathaway said the case was made of leather and cloth and was not limp, but obviously contained a rifle or gun. He remarked to Lawrence that it must be a Secret Service agent. Lawrence also saw the big blonde man, but did not see the rifle due to the growing crowd around him. Lawrence said the man gave him the impression of being a professional football player. This same man may have been seen later that day by Ernest Owens, who told the sheriff officers the afternoon of the assassination that he was driving on Wood Street near Good Latimer Expressway when he saw a white male of heavy build carrying a foreign-made rifle out of the parking lot. Owens said the man was bareheaded and wearing a dark-colored suit. Once Oswald was captured and proclaimed the assassination suspect, there was no effort to investigate these stories any further. A similar and more obvious event involved Julianne Mercer. Mercer was 23 years old. She told authorities that shortly before 11 a.m. on the day of assassination, she was driving a rented white Valant west on Elm Street, just past the point where Kennedy was killed about two hours later. Just after passing through the triple underpass, she found her traffic lane blocked by a green Ford pickup truck. While waiting for the truck to move, she saw a young man get out of the truck, walk to a long tool compartment along the side, and remove a long paper bag. She could see the outlines of a rifle in the back. The man then walked up on the grassy knoll carrying the package and was lost to her sight. She described this man as in his late 20s or early 30s, wearing a gray jacket, brown pants, a plaid shirt, and some sort of wool stocking cap with a tassel on it. Mercer said as she pulled alongside the truck, she locked eyes with the driver, whom she described as heavily built with a round face and light brown hair. She said during this time she saw three Dallas policemen standing by a motorcycle on the underpass talking. In Warren Commission Document 205, a policeman did tell of seeing the truck, but believed that it had broken down. When she was finally able to change lanes, Mercer drove on toward Fort Worth, stopping at the halfway point of Dallas-Fort Worth Toll Road to have breakfast. While eating, she told her experience to some policemen, commenting, the Secret Service is not very secret. Later, as she drove on to Fort Worth, she was stopped by a policeman, who informed her of the assassination, and took her back to Dallas for questioning. She was held for several hours and questioned by both local and federal authorities, although no one showed her a badge or identified themselves. Early the next morning, FBI men came to her home and then took her back to Dallas. They took her to the sheriff's office and showed her some various photos of men. She picked out two of them as the men she had seen in the truck the day before. Turning one photo over, she read the name 
Jack Ruby. During the TV coverage of Oswald's shooting the next day, Mercer claimed she again recognized Ruby as the man driving the truck. Mercer later claimed that her story concerning the truck and its occupants was twisted and changed by both the FBI and the Dallas Sheriff's Office. Her experience may have been partly corroborated by another Dallasite, Julius Hardy, who told the Dallas Morning News years later that the morning of November 22nd, he saw three men on top of the triple underpass carrying long arms, although he could not tell if they were rifles or shotguns. Hardy said he reported the incident to the FBI, but no such report was ever made public. was here with his wife on Houston Street in the crowd waiting for the motorcade. A few minutes before it arrived, Roland told the Warren Commission, he noticed an elderly Negro man up in the window where Oswald is supposed to have fired from. But he told the commission, and a few days ago repeated his story for us here, of seeing a gunman lurking in another window entirely. I was just looking around and we noticed a man up in the window and I remarked to my wife, tried to point him out and remarked that he must be a security guard, secret service agent. Well, the window then that you're referring to is on the opposite uh, end of the building from uh, where the main entrance to the building is. Yes, it is on the other side of the building. And he had a rifle. It looked like a high-powered rifle because it had a scope which looked in relation to the size of the rifle to be a big scope. Arnold Rowland would be the first of several witnesses that saw two men on the sixth floor of the depository that day, right before the assassination. Rowland's story of seeing two men was corroborated to the Warren Commission by Deputy Sheriff Roger Craig. Craig said Rowland told him about seeing two men pacing in the depository approximately five minutes before the assassination on the sixth floor. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Arnold Rowland. Mr. Rowland told me he saw two men on the sixth floor of the school book depository. Now, one was a white male in the east corner of the sixth floor with a rifle. The other one was a colored male at the west end of the sixth floor pacing back and forth. Although the area around Dealey Plaza was loaded with important witnesses who picked up fragmentary clues on who killed JFK, many of the most important ones were called out and never interviewed by the Warren Commission. In hindsight, it appears the more important an eyewitness testimony was, the more likely it would be flushed down a rabbit hole early in the game. Several witnesses saw strange things happening on the sixth floor right before the assassination. One of those men would be Richard Randolph Carr. On November 22, 1963, Carr was working on the seventh floor of the new courthouse building on the corner of Houston Street and Dealey Plaza. Just before President Kennedy was shot, Carr saw a heavyset man with horn-rimmed glasses and a tan sports jacket on the sixth floor of the school book depository. After the shooting, Carr saw the man emerge from the building. Carr followed the man and later told the FBI, this man walking very fast proceeded on Houston Street south to Commerce Street to Record Street. The man got into a 1961 or 1962 Gray Rambler station wagon, which was parked just north of Commerce Street on Record Street. Carr's story was not believed by the authorities. The Warren Commission did not call him as a witness, nor was he mentioned in any of their published evidence. Carr, a couple days after the assassination, went to the FBI and told him what he saw. An agent actually told him this. If you didn't see Lee Harvey Oswald in the school book depository with a rifle, then you didn't see anything and you better keep your mouth shut. Now, over here, Dan, still on Houston Street and not very far from the Rollins, was Mrs. Carolyn Walther. Mrs. Walther says that she saw two men with a gun in the book depository. I looked at this 
building, and um, I saw this man with the gun, and there was another man standing to his right, and I could not see all of this man, and I, and I couldn't see his face. And the other man was holding a short gun. It wasn't as long as a rifle, and uh, he was holding it pointed down, and he was kneeling in the window or sitting. His arms were on the window. And he was holding the gun in a downward position, and he was looking downward. He was just about in a window that was just about even with the top of that tree. I thought the man had light hair or brown and was wearing a, dark, a white shirt. But I explained to the FBI agents that I wasn't sure about that. That was my impression. I'm thinking about it later, that I thought that was the way the man was dressed. Now, what about this other man who was in the window? The southern man was wearing a brown suit, and that was all I could see was half of this man's body, from his shoulders to his hips. Sitting on a concrete retaining wall across the street from the depository was 44-year-old Howard Brennan. He was to become the star witness for the Warren Commission. Brennan, who had been working as a pipe fitter on a construction project behind the depository, had eaten lunch and had then taken his position to view the motorcade. It was determined that Brennan was 120 feet from the sixth floor window. He said he saw a man in an upper floor of the depository shortly before the motorcade arrived. He described the man as a slender white male in his early 30s, 5'10 in height, wearing light-covered clothing. Brennan stated, I heard what I thought was a backfire. It ran in my mind that it might be someone throwing firecrackers out the window of the red brick building and I looked up at the building. I then saw this man I have described in the window and he was taking aim with a high-powered rifle. I could see all of the barrel of the gun. I do not know if it had a scope on it or not. I was looking at the man in the window at the time of the last explosion. Then this man let the gun down to his side and stepped out of sight. He did not seem to be in a hurry. There was no particular emotion visible on his face except for a slight smirk. It was a look of satisfaction as if he had accomplished what he had set out to do. I believe I could identify this man if I ever saw him again. Brennan, who immediately rushed into the depository to tell a policeman what he had saw, apparently was the only witness out of the hundreds of people in the plaza that day to claim that he actually saw a gunman fire from the depository. However, later that evening, Brennan was unable to pick Lee Harvey Oswald out of a police lineup. Much later, it was determined that Brennan had poor eyesight, and in fact, a close examination of the Zapruder film shows that Brennan was not even looking up at the window at the time of the shooting. In a 1967 CBS News inquiry entitled The Warren Report, Howard Brennan would describe what he saw that day in Dallas. Among the witnesses here in the plaza, the commission relied heavily on the testimony of Howard Brennan. Watching from just about here, said that he actually saw the assassin firing. I looked directly across and up, possibility of a 45 degree angle. And this man, same man I had saw, prior to the president's arrival, was in the window and taking aim for his last shot. After he fired the last or the third shot, uh, he didn't seem to be in a great rush, hurry. Seemed to pause for a moment to see if for sure he accomplished his purpose. And he brought the gun back to rest in upright position as though uh, he was satisfied. Now, over here on the corner opposite the book depository stood a 15-year-old boy named Amos Ewan. A few days ago, Amos Ewans came back here with us and gave a vivid account of the assassination itself and of a piece of pipe he saw poking out of a window. When you come around, when I was standing there, I happened to look up and I seen a pipe, you know. So I never did pay no attention to that it might be a pipe, just a pipe, you know, sticking out. So it was sticking out about a foot, about that high, you know, so... Point out for me the window where you saw this piece of pipe. It was about on the sixth floor, right below the bounce. 
In his testimony before the Warren Commission, Hamish Yunes expanded on his description of the gunman. When asked what the man looked like by our inspector of the Warren Commission, Mr. Yunes stated, quote, I seen a bald spot on this man's head, trying to look out the window. He had a bald spot on his head. I was looking at the bald spot. I could see his hand, you know, the rifle laying across in his hand. And I could tell his hand sticking on the trigger part. And after he got through, he just pulled it back in the window. Spectre then asked, Now what kind of look, if any, did you have at the man who was there in the window? Mr. Yoon states, All I got to see was the man with a spot in his head, because he had his head something like this. Spectre says, Indicating his face down, looking down at the rifle? Yuen states, Yes, sir. And I could see the spot on his head, a bald spot. Yuen then goes on to say that he couldn't even describe the race of the man, which seems odd. One thing's for sure, Lee Harvey Oswald didn't have a bald spot on his head. A few more witnesses claim they saw a gun protruding from the sixth floor window. One of those witnesses would be Mrs. Earl Cable, who was the wife of the former mayor of Dallas. She was in the motorcade with her husband three or four cars behind President Kennedy's car. She says she saw a gun sticking out of one of the windows on the sixth floor. She wasn't sure exactly what window, but she didn't see a gunman. Two news photographers in the motorcade, Bob Jackson and Malcolm Cowt, saw a rifle barrel being withdrawn from the window on the upper floor of the school book depository. At the time of the shooting, their vehicle was on Houston Street, about halfway between Main Street and Elm Street, with the depository directly in front of them. Johnson wrote about his experience in a newspaper, the Dallas Times-Herald, the following day. Johnson states, As I looked up to the window, window above, I saw a rifle being pulled back in the window. It might have been resting on the windowsill. I didn't see a man. I didn't even see if it had a scope on it. I looked to my left and I could see both cars speeding off, the president's car and the car behind him. Malcolm Couch goes on to say this, and after the third shot, Bob Jackson, who was as I recall on my right, yelled something like, look up in the window. There's a rifle, and I remember glancing up to a window on the far right, which at the time impressed me as the 6th or 7th floor, and seeing about a foot of a rifle being the barrel brought into the window. I saw no one in that window, just a quick one-second glance at the barrel. James O'Rell, age 20, claimed to have been standing almost directly underneath the 6th floor on the sidewalk. O'Rell states, I looked up and saw the barrel of a rifle sticking out of a window over my head about 5 or 6 stories up. While I was looking at the gun, it was fired again. I looked back at Mr. Kennedy and he was slumping over. I got scared and ran from the location. The Warren Commission had great trouble finding convincing evidence that would place Lee Harvey Oswald on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository during the assassination of President Kennedy. Although it is indisputable that gunshots were fired from the depository, none of the many photographs and home movies taken of the assassination show anyone in the southeastern sixth floor window where the empty bullet shells were found. Official interviews and statements show that 10 named witnesses outside in Dealey Plaza noticed suspicious activity on an upper floor of the, of the Texas School Book depository from about 12.15 until the time of the shooting. In summary, four witnesses saw a man in a window holding a gun. Two witnesses saw a man in a window but no gun. And four witnesses saw a gun in a window but no gunman. The official evidence is not only ambiguous but also incomplete. The Warren Commission failed to follow up claims that other witnesses had seen activity in the depository. Some of these witnesses have been interviewed by journalists and private researchers in the years since the assassination. Howard Brennan was the only witness that could place a person that looked somewhat like Lee Harvey Oswald in the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository at the time of the assassination. In Brennan's statement on the day of the assassination, he claimed that the gunman was a white man in his early 30s. 
30s, slender, nice looking, and would weigh about 165 to 175 pounds. He had on light color clothing. In his Warren Commission testimony, Brennan gave the man's height as 5'10". Arnold Rowland and Ronald Fisher both described the man they saw as slender, and Fisher added that he looked to be 22 to 24 years old. All three descriptions could reasonably have applied to Oswald, but could also have applied to any number of young white men. Let's look at the reliability of Howard Brennan, the Warren Commission star witness. He claimed that the man he saw was standing up when aiming the rifle, but the sash window made this impossible. It was only open about waist height. Brennan also claimed, I was looking up at the man in this window at the time of the last explosion, but later he easily denied that he had seen the man fire the gun. Brennan claimed on the afternoon of the assassination, quote, I believe that I could identify this man if I ever saw him again, end quote but he was unable to pick Oswald out of a lineup a few hours later at the Dallas Police Department, despite having seen Oswald's photograph on television in the meantime. Although the Warren Commission promoted Howard Brennan as a star witness in its case against Oswald, the House Select Committee on Assassinations was more skeptical and declined to use Brennan. There is little doubt that shots were fired at President Kennedy from the Texas School Book Depository. The big question is who fired those shots? Was it Lee Oswald or someone else? Where was Oswald at the time of the shooting? We're going to look at that next week on the end of the innocence, the JFK assassination. We'll see you then.